1: Hello and welcome to the Domahavey podcast. This is the Generate Kiwi Saver Scheme Summer Series, Volume Two. Thanks for downloading and choosing to listen to this very special best of compilation, and a special welcome to any brand new listeners. Coming up on this episode, excerpts from a heap of different guests who appeared on the podcast in 2023. So ahead of you is not just one guest, but about 15 absolute legends. The hope is that if some of the snippets ahead of you pique your interest, you'll make a note and go back and listen to the full episode sometime if you're yet to do so. And to make things extra convenient, in the podcast description I have the names, and the order of all the guests in this episode and the time their portion starts. So you can listen to them from start to finish or just listen to whoever you choose. Up to you. Just prior to cracking into it, special thanks to the sponsor of the summer series, the Generate Kiwi Saver Scheme. One of your resolutions for 2024 should be to take a more active interest in your Kiwi Saver. There's a saying I really love, which you can apply to most things in life, actually. Hard choice, easy life. Easy choice, hard life. And with money... The easy choice is to spend all your money now and then have a hard life when you retire. The harder choice is to be more disciplined now and put as much of your money as you can away so life can be easy when you retire. I am a massive fan of the Generate team and I cannot speak highly enough about the job they do for their clients. Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of chart-topping long-term performance. If you want to make sure you're making the most of your KiwiSaver account, talk to an advisor head to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash advice. A copy of their product disclosure statement can be found there too. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Okay, let's get into it. The Generate Kiwi Saver Scheme Summer Series. This is Jono Riddler. He's an endurance swimmer. We caught up just a few days after he finished his EPIC 99-kilometre swim from Great Barrier Island to Auckland, non-stop. It's an incredible feat of endurance. Have a listen. I can't believe you're um, here sitting in front of me. We're recording this on a Sunday afternoon. Maybe 90 hours or thereabouts since you got out of the water. There so or thereabouts. It is, it is that fresh. So I just greeted you at the door. Uh, we walked up two flights of stairs. You're still walking a bit gingerly. Um, <laughs> what you have done this week is just... It's mind-boggling. It's one of the most amazing, I think, feats of endurance that I've heard anyone do.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little bit weird kind of getting my head around it as well, even after the fact, and even though I was the the one doing it. But like, yeah, it still feels a little bit kind of weird to me.
1: Well, what was it in the end? It wasn't quite 100 k's, just under 100 k's. Yeah,
2: yeah, we were going for over 100 in, right. a, in a straight line. Turned out to be 99.1, like, unofficial, but... uh but it's based on a straight line, so it'll be about 95. Like, we had to cut it short. Yeah, there's a whole story behind (laughs) behind that, but, uh, yeah.
1: yeah. And and, uh, so so what are the rules with a swim like this? So you're not allowed to touch the boat at all?
2: Yeah, yeah, can't touch the boat. Uh, Like, just normal togs above the knees, below the waist. One cap, one pair of goggles. Uh, Yeah, those are kind of the essentials, and you've got to touch um, or start above the waterline and then exit above the waterline as well uh, if you're able to. If it's like a cliff, then you just touch the natural part of the shore to to mark the start or or finish.
1: There's a lot of rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I first heard about what you were doing for Live Ocean when I saw a billboard outside my house and I I saw it and I thought, oh, that's impressive, but I didn't really think too much about it because I, I suppose I thought you'd be swimming for a couple of hours and then going on a boat. You know, having a nap, freshening up, whatever, then carrying on. Mm. I, and when you when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, and you realise you know you're in the water, once you start, that's it until you finish. And there's it's just you there's a support boat there, um, but it may as well not be because it's you know independent from you. It's fucking crazy.
2: Yeah, I mean it's, it's crazy. It's non stop, continuous. You can you know you can have feeding breaks, and I was having a feeding break every forty minutes or so. But you're just treating water during that time. So, yeah, staying awake, staying moving for what eventuated to be about 33 and a half hours.
1: Yes, there's so much you're dealing with here. There's the you know, the sleep deprivation, there's the physical exertion, the mental stuff. It's a lot. I, th- I think we'll start right back at the beginning. So the early years. Were you always a swimmer?
2: Not really, no. No? No, I did a you little bit. You didn't do
1: like competitive swimming growing up or as a kid or anything? No. No,
2: no. no the, clo- the closest I came to competitive swimming was like... Uh, school swimming sp- uh, sports and uh, yeah I, I think I did like maybe four or five years of yep. learning to swim. I right. uh, didn't enjoy it you know definitely wasn't my jam. <laughs>
1: oh, it's, it's very boring isn't
2: it? Yeah I, th- I think especially when you're a kid you know you're like mm. just trying to hold, hold your attention. <laughs> yeah. You want to do something that's a bit more interesting. So I was playing other sports like team sports, ball sports. Still love the water like we spent a lot of time around the water growing up and you know love spending time in the ocean and around the ocean. But it wasn't until um, my early 20s that I actually got into open water swimming. And
1: How old are you got, now? You're like 33? 33, 33 yeah, yeah. So early, early 20s. Okay, so that's quite a late start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what made you get into it?
2: Well, I, I got injured when I was snowboarding in Canada. Like, had a really bad uh, shoulder injury, a great uh, 3 AC separation. I just fell quite badly onto my shoulder and then... Coming back from Canada to New Zealand a, f- a few months later, I went into the pool and used that as a way of rehabbing my shoulder. My dad and my brother were doing the swim across Auckland Harbour back when back when that was running as part of the Ocean Swim Series. You know, signed up for that and um, managed to do that swim. Had some uh, difficulty <laughs> along the way. Kind of, what, well, just
1: because of the distance?
2: The distance and then, you know, in, in the first... Hundred meters or so, I had a panic attack, and uh, it was just the thought of being out in the open ocean, or you know, it's not quite the open ocean out there, but like no, unless, away from and away s- from land, support forms. kayaks
1: and yeah. things. But had, had you done training for it, so you were
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. my training was uh, over. It I think it was Point Chev, you know, just like up and down the beach there, and you're all, you can stand up whenever you want to. So yeah, it's yeah. like yeah, it's very different. And then anyway, push push through that. Uh, and got to the end. It wasn't like a fast time or anything like that. I think it was like an hour 10 or something for 2.8K.
1: Right. So, yes. So so it seems very weird that you'd gravitate towards this thing because you you didn't do it as a a kid to speak of. Um, You tried it as an adult. You had a panic attack. you think you'd get to the end of that ocean swim and be like, okay, that was was frightening, but I did it, and now we're done. (laughs) (laughs) But not you.
2: Yeah, I I tried running for a little while, (laughs) seeing as this is the Runners Only podcast. I can, can weave that in a bit, but... I was, I was training for a, a marathon in 2014, the Auckland Marathon and uh, I was so close, like I'd just done my final big training run which was 32 Ks uh, and then off the back of that I got a really bad case of patellofemoral pain syndrome on the knee than yeah. just bad inflammation, that took like months and months and months to recover from so I said bugger this I'm not going to do running anymore <laughs> and started getting more into the swimming so I think there was always, like, a bit of an endurance leaning, uh, and that manifested in swimming. And, yeah, it, like, really just got hooked on it, you know. Like, the I did a marathon swim in 2016, and then on the back of
1: that. What's a marathon swim?
2: Uh, 10K. Okay. 10K is sure, it's a marathon a distance. Even
1: that's, yeah, like, I mean, you know, we're, we're going to get to the 100K swim, which is, like, 10 times – a marathon swim distance, but swimming 10Ks, that's a fucking long way on its own. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah.
2: an insane distance. <laughs> I guess, yeah, probably like at, at the time it felt pretty insane to me. But yeah, now, now obviously it feels a bit more natural.
1: John O'Ridler on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Lee Hart on how he reinvented the salt and vinegar chip with his brand, Changy. I don't know, me and my uh, video guy, Dougie, we were talking about Mark Ellis before you arrived and uh, you know, making all his money from of orange juice. I and mean, yeah, it's like, yeah. we, how, how did someone see a gap in that market? To me, it's the same with like, salt and vinegar chips. It was a clustered market. There's, there's cop, copper kettles and yeah. bluebird or whatever. But you sort of reinvented the chip wheel.
3: But I think it's a comedy of errors and it's that – what do you call that sort of navigation um, – it's like best, get, you know, you're following stars, but you're probably going that way, that way, that way. You know, it's... Um,
1: not like a direct route.
3: Yeah, there's, a, there's some sort of term for it. I might come back to me. But um, I didn't sort of suddenly thought, think... I'll, I was thinking what would be good with, with the beer, a good compliment for the beer... And to be honest, I was slightly bored again because I was waiting. <laughs> I was
1: in between seasons.
3: I wanted to get the beer into cans for the brewery. And the brewery I was working with, McCashan's, they were trying the hardest to get a canning line, but they didn't have one yet. And I said, well, come we use someone else's, whatever. So I was a little bit frustrated because it's hard to keep marketing the same thing saying, oh, beer's still here, drink it. You know, I wanted to tell the story that we're in cans now, whatever. So in the meantime, I thought, okay, well, how can I keep the story going with something else? So... Uh, I could have been. I was thinking about doing nuts or you know chips, something to do with beer. Long story short, I think I contacted Griffins and said I'm um, keen to do some chips, um, the wacky jangy sort of kind of thing, and they got me in for a meeting. And this is where it gets weird. Because they, they would expect me to be the wacky kind of guy, you know, like come up. So they were thinking, oh, okay, what do you think? Are they going to be like beer-flavored chips, are they? Beer and chive and cheese or something. <laughs> and I was going,
4: well, that sounds, that sounds, sounds disgusting.
3: <laughs> you know, that's well, you know, a common sense. Yeah. Like just because you're it's a so-called wacky, crazy guy, that's, that, that sounds like they're terrible. How would that sell? So I said, what are your top four flavors? And they said, well, salted, salt vinegar, and barbecue or something i said well let probably makes sense to do those wouldn't it? they said well we've already got those i said yeah no, know but we'll do it different and with a different spin on it they said oh, okay that sounds good um and then they said what sort of chip do you want to do and i suddenly realized i was pretty un- unprepared for this sort of meeting and i had not really feel that much about it. so i was going oh yeah well you know i, I didn't want chips that broke away in the dip and stuff it had to be it so I-, I was thinking about of a thick chip anyway so I said, I sort of threw the question back. I said, well, what are you doing now? What do you do now? And they said, well, we do a thick chip. We do, the, we do a crinkle cut, and we do a kettle fry as well. And I said, well, cool. Can you do all that to the same chip?
5: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I remember I was, I was sitting in this boardroom, and all of a sudden, you know, someone looks up and someone asked the R&D guy, and they go, you know, next thing so we did that, and it somehow locks the flavour. And I think somehow I don't know, but because um,
1: they, they are more flavoursome than yeah. any other chip. And they, or they, a long they, shot. Of, they of
3: course came up with a, sort of the, the, the flavour. We went in for tastings. And we said not that one. We, we so we, I suppose we all sort of came up with the profile, so to speak. But at the end of the day, it's still a salt and vinegar chip, mm. which is now vinegar and salt because the vinegar is. More you know, full on in ones, I think you know. <laughs> so that's what you have to do. You just put a twist on the same thing: vinegar and salt instead of salt and vinegar.
1: Yeah, but I and mean, but you see the packaging, and it's um, it's yeah. it's very funny, and it's very humorous, and it's very tongue in cheek, and it's very Lee Hart, But yeah, the, but the bottom line is, it's um, it's the best chip.
3: Oh, totally. And I think I've you know, thanks to Griffin's kind of oh, home run. I haven't fluked it because I like to. F- <laughs> I'd like to take as much credit as I can, but if they tasted like shit, it wouldn't matter, and matter how good the branding was.
1: People buy it once and that's take- it. Yeah, they go yeah. they
3: buy it out of loyalty or whatever. I like the fact that hopefully most people that buy those chips now don't even know who the hell I am. They just like the chips, heard from someone else that they taste good, and they continue to taste good. And if they happen to know me or read the packet and enjoy a laugh. That's a bonus. Again, it's that I do all the copy and stuff on the on the packets, and for me, that is a way. A bit like when I talk about the beer, of keeping myself out there in a way, without having to do a radio show every day, without having to um, do a TV show every you know second week to say so I'm still here kind of thing. It's it's kind of a bit of a release. Um, I'm just I'm surely not like writing a book or a, you know a column, but you know I quite enjoy doing the. Mm. The copy and stuff and that kind of thing, you
1: know. Yeah, that's awesome. Is that is, will that be? Is that lucrative? Will that be like a retirement thing?
3: Yeah, the, the chips are probably the most lucrative. Yeah,
1: amazing. Chip.
3: Yeah,
1: um, oh, well deserved. Listen, no, no, none of this is none of this is luck. Like this all stems back to the, <laughs> uh, I suppose, the entrepreneurial spirit you had in your twenties when you started your newspaper. Yes, yeah, it's,
3: it's a case of, um, you know how you know some people, young people, or someone would say, what advice would you give to a young person trying to do this and this? As And it's so cliche, it's that thing of uh, give it a crack. So it's not luck, it's it's give it a crack. If it doesn't work, who cares? Mm -hmm. what have
1: you got to lose? Lee Hart on the Generate Summer Series. From one TV icon to another, Hayden Jones. He's a TV presenter from Fair Go, also hosts a segment at the end of One Network News on Sunday night called Good Sorts. In the early stages of his career, he worked with Paul Holmes on The Holmes Show. And these are his recollections from that time.
5: Holmes throwing me up and said, because I was a bit quirky and a bit weird, and that's what they were looking for. So they said, come and do a couple of stories for us, and then I was there for, I'm still there now.
1: That's amazing. Now, I, I don't want to patronise anyone that's listening to this, but for anyone that doesn't know, Homes was the 7pm show on TV1, uh, now called 7 Sharp. Yeah. Um, but it was, like, game-changing, groundbreaking current affairs TV. It's yeah. a massive show. Yeah. Uh, like, any big start in New Zealand would go on Homes. Yeah. Um, Paul Holmes died a number of years ago, but he was at uh, the breakfast house on ZB for a number of years and did this TV show, like worked both ends of the day for many, many years. Also loved to smoke and drink as well. <laughs> <laughs> loved his, loved his buttery shards. Oh, loved his yeah. ciggies. Um, he lived a big life. A massive, massive life and a massive heart. Wow. So how did, how did, so, so he, so you didn't approach him. He just—you ended up on his radar
6: somehow.
5: Yeah, well, they obviously saw my tape when I went for this news job, and yeah, they rang me and said, "You can, can you come down and do a piece?" The, the assignment they gave me was, "Can you go to the viaduct and um, interview people about uh, when so when Russell Coates was in a lingy for the America's Cup, and he was like public enemy number one?" So I went down with a clipboard, trying to sign people up for the Russell Coates fan club. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it was so much fun. Oh, that's good. That's um that's a blast from the past. That was a big deal as well. Yeah, Russell Coots and Brad Butterworth—they were considered like a, yeah, massive, massive traitors. Shit,
5: now we're both uh, sounding old.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's funny. I feel like um New Zealand's not the same now. Like if um Blair Chuk and Peter Burling decided to go and race for a different syndicate, I be feel like, like yeah. I feel people be a bit more mature about it now. Yeah, oh, I don't know. Maybe not. I think so. But yeah.
5: Yeah, but Holmesy was amazing. Just gave his best. And if we couldn't get someone on the show, um. I've never seen anyone else do this. He would get on the phone personally and ring them up and he was great with people. Just so good with people. And um, nine times out of ten, they would get on the show. If He would always grumble about it. He thought the public didn't like him and would get in the car because I had to I produce a lot of his field, um, field work. And he'd be like, oh, do we have to go and do this? This is going to be terrible. Oh, <laughs> and he'd go out there and he would charm them and get what he needed and amazing. And he was one of those guys so annoying. He knew everyone's name. We went to a, like a teen... Um, mother's unit where they, they were going to have um, babies, obviously. Well, they all had babies, and it's like this room for eight of them in a circle. And he shook them all and said hi all the way through. And I said, like, "Oh, yeah, that's pretty good." But on the way out, and he said, "Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Sharon." Just knew the whole. Is that so? Yeah, and I was like, "Man, that is amazing."
1: Just yeah, everyone talked about Holmes having like the the common touch, or yeah. being the man of the people, or relatable, or whatever. Yeah. Um, did he ever did he ever yell at you? He had a notorious tantrum on oh. as well. <laughs>
5: <laughs> not to disrespect those
1: of the oh, past, but Oh yeah. no, I think but I feel I feel like this is part of the legacy. <laughs> this isn't this isn't um, shitting on a dead guy. This is part of the home's part of the fabric of what made him wonderful.
5: We um we were going to the Hawks Bay because uh, remember SARS? I think it was SARS. No, that would have been too early. It would have been earlier than SARS, so there was a bird flu or maybe pigs. Pigs flew. Oh, swine flu. Swine yeah. flu. Yeah, right, it was right, one right, of those. Right. And so we were going to the Hawks Bay to interview the doctors and look at the sealed unit and that sort of thing. So we were on a plane in Auckland about to go and the other reporters from the Holmes program, it was like the, the first victim was in Danivick and we knew but we shouldn't know and we were gonna go knock on the door and try and get them on camera and it was all like <laughs> so I couldn't tell Holmes that we knew because it might intercept our relationship with the hospital people. And so he kind of got wind that I knew that we were, that something else, and he was like, "You're not telling me what's happening, gang!" And we're in that we're in the middle of a plane about to take off, and he's on one side of the aisle, and I'm on the other, and he's like, got his finger at me in my face, like, "The show, the, the name was on the marquee. What's the name on the marquee?" And I'm trying to figure out what this marquee he's talking about, and he's talking about the name on the show, and the name on the show is Holmes, and he's Paul Holmes, and you must tell me at all times. I'm bloody never going to forget this, and he went tore an absolute strip off me, and then. We got off the plane and we had a great day filming and it went really well. And on the way home to the plane, he goes, Oh, Hayden, I'm a bit sorry about that. There was, that was mm. probably a bit much on the way over. But he was so likeable and so passionate about it. You just, you had to love
1: it. Yeah, that. you take the good with the, the bad. At, oh, the, at the time, though, being like a young, a young journalist uh, working with the king of New Zealand media, that must have been intimidating as fuck. Like, when he, if Holmes is telling you off, it must. Yeah. Feel like a telling off.
5: Oh, the first few times, I just didn't know what oh, it was Oh, the first doing. few times? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> After a while, you get immune to it. <laughs> oh, he
5: The longer I worked, there, the less he did. Yeah, yeah,
7: yeah. he yeah. just
5: knew when he was going to blow, and he was really um, very sensitive and aware, like if something was going down, that he was, in the pa- he was in the papers a lot for stuff that wasn't to do with his job.
1: He was news.
5: Yeah, he was, and he we would like in the bottom floor of the TVNZ car park, he wouldn't want to walk past... The door where you could see in because they thought there might have been photographers there so we'd have to kind of take the long way just to get to the car where we were going sometimes that sort of level of anxiety paranoia or whatever was quite confronting for a boy from gore who walked for the gore enzyme (laughs) back in the day it was yeah quite surreal sometimes especially you'd go out with other people too and they would like fawn him or some people would have not many people had to go but they would fawn him or they'd ask for this or that just they wanted
1: a piece of him hayden jones on the generate summer series Now, Simon Cochran, a Waikato-based athlete who smashed a world record in a relatively unknown event called the Ultraman. This snippet explains exactly what Ultraman
8: is, and is an intro to
1: the incredible Simon Cochran. How long has Ultraman been a thing? This is the first time I've heard about this event.
8: So Ultraman's been going since 1983. Wow. So they're going to have the Fortieth anniversary in Hawaii this year, so it's, it's be quite a big event. Um, and then there's also five other ultraman events around the world. So you got Australia, Canada, Arizona, Florida, and maybe one more.
1: So it's not a new thing because uh, I, I, I know the um, the world record was set like a couple of months ago, yep. and that poor bastard only held it for like it's <laughs> <laughs> like a couple of months before you broke it. God, he must hate you. <laughs> However, you you smashed his record though. So what you've done is phenomenal. Like, it's not just shaving a minute or two or even ten minutes off. It's like an hour
8: what? It was almost an hour and a half, so, It's yeah. insane.
1: It's not going to be broken, eh, for a long time.
8: Well, hopefully this brings a few extra guys out of the woodwork, um, some other top athletes, um, and have a crack.
1: Because this is the first time you've had a crack.
8: Yep, first time. I know a couple of the guys who have done it before. A good mate of mine, Carl, has won Ultraman Australia a couple of times. Yeah, that, that sort of got me interested And because I've got a a fairly good swim, bike, run background and some ultra running experience in the last year or so, then I thought, yeah, it interests me quite a bit.
1: When it was confirmed that you were lining up for Ultraman, you, I mean, you've done a, we're going to get into all of this, but you've done like a shit ton of endurance events. You've done so many Ironmen and stuff. Um, do you think um, people would have been watching you around the world with keen interest or just thinking you're a novice? And you, you know what I mean? Like, Do you think anyone apart from you was predicting you were going to break the world record?
8: Probably not break the world record, but I think, yeah, from the the racing history over the last few years and, yeah, experience over the long, long stuff, I think a few people thought I was going to go well and possibly win this one, but, yeah, I didn't even think I was going to, yeah, take an hour and a half off the world record, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, we better run through what Ultraman is. So it's kind of like a a, a double Ironman and a little bit more.
8: Yeah, pretty much. So it's, it's pretty much a double Ironman distance, well, a bit more, 515 k's across three days, so day one, 10K open water swim and 145K bike. Day two, 275K bike. <laughs> and then, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big day. And then day three, <laughs> to top it off, is a double marathon. So you're running a marathon out, turn around, and a marathon back
1: Yeah and your, your times on Obviously I mean you got the world record But your times on all these things are, s- are sizzling I, like, I don't know much about swimming or cycling But um, I've done running for a number of years And your, your run time was phenomenal The first marathon was a sub three, second one like a 307 yeah, yeah I
8: think yeah. yeah, 258 and a 307 to, to give me a 606 double marathon
1: Yeah so the, the drop off in the second half of that run After two big days before that Was very minimal
8: yeah, and I probably went out a little bit quicker than I was hoping, but that does give you the benefit of having a bit of a buffer over but that thinking, same half. Yep, a bit yep.
1: Simon Cochran. Now we have Kelsey Waghorn, one of my personal favourite podcasts of 2023. Uh, Kelsey is a Fakari White Island survivor. She was a guide on the island when it erupted. This is her talking about the Netflix documentary produced by Ron Howard and Leonardo DiCaprio called The Volcano. Have you seen the Netflix movie?
9: hmm yeah. Yep, I have.
1: Tell me about that watching experience. Um, did you watch it when it first came out, or did they send you like an advance copy? Or? They
9: sent me an advance copy because I kind not of, The whole way through, um, I like I've said to you, like with all the um, court cases and stuff, like I'm just trying to protect my own skin. Um, so I do like to be able to see it ahead of time so that if there's anything in there, I'm like, "Oh, that could be misconstrued or taken the wrong way and, um, I guess, yeah, be used against me or one of my colleagues. Um, I do ask if I can see it so that if there's any changes I would like made to clear things up, then, um, yeah, I do that. So they did that for me, which was really cool. Mm. Um, yeah, and so did... Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of it now. The one that I did in the first year for, yeah. I think it was TV3. Right. I can't remember now.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah cause I, knowing that you were coming around today, I watched that a couple of nights ago. Mm. Um, just me sitting here. And I've been to White Island before many, many years ago, but I've got no other connection to it really, and it was yeah. a hard watch for me. So I can't, I, I can't imagine you know, what it's like watching it when you are involved with it, and this is your reality now. yeah. Yeah. So who, who, do you, who do you sit down and watch it with?
9: Uh, I'm really naughty and I do it on my own. Oh, God. I'm one of those people where I'm like, if I'm going to be triggered, if I'm going to cry, I'm going to do it in the privacy of my own room where no one can watch me. So I, Shit,
1: you're a tough cookie, aren't you? Or, oh, I sort of imagine, Or
9: I'm just a moron. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just a, I'm just a stubborn moron, really. Um, no, I think,
1: I think you're just made from some tough stuff. I
9: uh, just, yeah, I don't
1: know. Right. <laughs> is it, so is, is it a hard watch for you?
9: Um. I I don't know, I I don't really remember it now, I've only watched it once, and I kind of keep saying, because people ask, like, what do you think of the Netflix documentary, I'm like, I can remember it, was fine, Um, but I guess the whole way through it, I was um, more critiquing what was fact and what wasn't, the whole way through it, so it was just like, I guess I probably wasn't really paying attention to the whole thing, it was like, yep, that fact's correct, that's correct, yep, that's correct, like, just kind of fact-checking the whole way through it. Um, but there is one bit of footage in there which kind of took me by surprise, and it's um, from from my group, from one of the girls in my group. And um, I think I might be wrong, so hopefully I'm not wrong. But um, she basically, as we went to run um, for cover, she put her phone in her pocket and accidentally hit record, and so the whole thing is recorded and um, they put the first little bit of that in there, and I'd been, like, specifically told by the police, don't watch that piece of footage because it's pretty horrible. Like, you can't see anything, but you can hear everything, which obviously is not great. Um, and I get triggered really bad with noises and audio, and so that came up, and I instantly knew what it was, and I was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, and I just was just like, do I shut the computer? Do I block my ears? And so I kind of didn't focus for probably the next couple of minutes, and thankfully they didn't put all the really nasty stuff in which is really really good um
1: what's what I, I mean you may not even know what the real nasty stuff is what like screaming or, yeah yeah yeah
9: yeah so the whole the whole i think there's about 20 minutes of footage of the whole thing um and you can just hear everything and me yelling at my group um so yeah you you,
1: nice. you, you say yelling at your group but you um you still had your like your work hat on
9: yeah
10: I was, so you I were was working
1: which is which is <laughs> Fucking astonishing to me because I suppose there's, there's there's two types of people and you don't know if you're going to be a fight or flight person until you're in that situation. But the fact that you were like um worrying about your group and not thinking about self-preservation, shit. I mean, does does that it, it make you proud of yourself? It makes me proud of you.
9: Um,
1: I don't know. Like it's, in, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, I guess you're in the same position as all these other people that you don't know from a bar or soap.
9: Yeah, yeah, I um. I have a friend who, um, she's adamant that she wants to tell the world, like, what I did, and, um, she keeps, yeah, like I said, saying, saying the H word, hero, and stuff, and it's just like, it, I don't know, it just, it feels weird, it's just, I don't know, I, I did what I thought anyone else would do, and just reacted to the situation as fast as I could, and I don't know, it, yeah, it is what it is for me, and it's not, something that I brag about or
1: talk about or even think out. about yeah, really,
9: yeah yeah
1: it's just it just is what it is Kelsey Waghorn on the Generate Summer Series next up JJ Feeney very strange episode this one felt a bit like a therapy session for me personally uh for those of you who may not know uh, JJ is my ex worked together as breakfast radio co-host for a number of years here's a snippet from that episode which was the most listened to episode of the year in 2023, it's hard to know how much we focus on the dynamic of our relationship, which there's a lot of curiosity about, and how much we just focus on the JJ story. Well,
11: when so maybe, people ask you to have me on your podcast, why do they say why? They
1: never specify. Oh,
11: cool.
1: I suppose um, they just like hearing us together. <laughs> we did. We did. We, that's. A, geez, I was thinking about this overnight. Um, I woke up and I was just thinking about how how we structure this podcast and and how how I do it. And it just filled me up with guilt and shame. Just there's so so much stuff that I feel bad about. Like we worked together for so many years, mm. and um, I I took it so seriously. <laughs> and uh, and you I look back now, and you're the the best person I've worked with, and the easiest person to work with. And I was so hard to work with. I took it so seriously.
11: Are you crying? <laughs>
1: i maybe getting a little bit, am I getting teary?
11: You hardly ever cried. It took like 11 yeah, years yeah, 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 before yeah. you even cried in a relationship mm. and you're emotional now. Look, you're not, you're not that. Well, you...
1: <laughs> no, I, 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 I just wanted to be successful so badly. I mm. think I prioritised work at the expense of everything else.
11: You did. You did, but. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was your chance to say no, no.
11: No, but I get it because I know how much how important work is and how how it, how important radio is and was, you know, to you because was radio's not like you know, it's not like a normal job. It's like you live it. It does consume you, and you know you live your life on the radio and all that stuff. So I understand that, but you. The thing about you is you want to win you're passionate and you're very good at what you do and you want to win but you want to win so badly that sometimes you weren't willing to uh make let let people make mistakes to get there
1: oh, I was a control freak so yeah you're yeah. a little
11: bit hard on other people which I found <laughs> well, not me because I would just tell you to fuck off <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dougie, can we get some tissues in here, please? Uh, uh, no, no, that's right. No, uh, you're upset. Uh, I don't like seeing you upset. Uh, uh, no, 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 Dom. No, we
3: we're all right.
11: But it's totally fine. Like, I enjoyed working with you because I, <laughs> I, I felt relaxed around you. I could be honest with you. And you can't be honest with everybody that you work with. Yeah. The only other co-host I've had where I can be that honest is Flinny, who I have now. And we're pretty honest with each other. Um, I mean, obviously, not 100%, but um, with you. Oh. Hang on.
1: No, we're good. We're good.
11: Yeah. Um. But you can't hate someone for wanting to do the best. Yeah. And you were the best. Like you're genius. Your mind is genius. You're so creative. You're so clever. I just admire that you could come up with an idea like this, and it's outside the box. Mm. And you know, you're you're a massive reason why the Edge succeeded. Um, and you know it's without you know after after you le- after you left <laughs> you know it's not it's not the same no it's not the but, same but no
1: but then you 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 take a break from this um, this industry that you love and then you realize I put everything I had into this thing which no one gives a shit about. Like when you take a step back from it, you realize like, when you're in there, it feels like you're like part of the All Blacks or something and everyone <laughs> cares. And then you take a break. I don't, I can't tell you when the ratings come out. Oh, I used to like, have sleepless nights before the radio ratings came out. Anyway, this is not, this is not, um, <laughs> this is your podcast, not mine. I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um,
11: well, okay. Yeah. What? No, I just think you beat yourself up now yeah. as well and yeah. you shouldn't and this is the thing about you as you do you beat yourself up so much that I think it's t- sometimes can stop you from succeeding further because you s- you are so much better than you think you are. You you and it's 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 not a bad thing. Like you you are so passionate and want to want to do so well and you do do well, but I feel like sometimes you just need to relax a little bit. And let let things take a natural course, and trust other people, and trust what other people say. And you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, look at you; you're doing fine. You're doing yeah. absolutely fine. You're one of the top bloody broadcasters in New Zealand, without a doubt. And I'm not just because I'm married to you. People will go, oh, you just saying that? Because you know you're biased." But I mean, the reason why I was attracted to you in the first place, as well, was because you were very uh, successful way back then, in the 90s.
12: <laughs>
11: and I love that about you. I love that that you were um, so determined, passionate, ambitious, uh, successful. I love that. That was That's the sort of thing that I'm attracted to. And, you know, that, that's always been you. That
1: is you. JJ on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Sarah Gerhardt, an American sports writer who wrote an incredible book this year. Well, I thought it was incredible, called We Share the Sun. It was all about her time at a Kenyan camp where the world's greatest runners live and train. Here is Sarah talking about her relationship with the greatest marathon runner ever, this is Undisputed, Elliot Kipchoge. How many live at this camp? How many athletes um, are there? A
13: little over 30. Right. Yeah. So
1: Elliot's just like one of the one of the gang.
13: One of the guys, right? yeah. No
1: special treatment, no nothing.
13: No, and I really appreciated seeing that because yeah, sure. you would, one would think that he would be, you know, put up on some pedestal but he's treated equally he treats everyone equally and it was really nice to see that um, and he's super reflective of his character you know like you can be a really successful athlete or person and still be humble and I think that's a really important lesson for people to, to learn and take away from the book and also just if you have the opportunity to ever meet him learn that too.
1: Yeah, even though this book is about um, his coach first and foremost, mm-hmm. um, how, how well do you know Elliot? Like if you, if you passed him in the lobby of the hotel, would he be like, hey, Sarah?
13: Yes, yes. So I actually had the opportunity, I was in Kenya in March, and I had the opportunity to present Coach Sang a book, an early copy of the book. You know, there's a library at the training camp, and that was so lovely. And I had a marker in my hand, and Elliot... He saw the marker, he was like, "Give me that." And he takes it and he opens the book and he signs it. He, I didn't even ask him. He just signed it. And it was, <laughs> is yeah, it, is that what you wanted? You wanted him to sign it? I mean, I suppose I would have asked him, but like, I, I didn't. I mean. I was happy that he was excited. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah.
1: So how does the training work? So they, they they leave their family and they go there for the week. It's like work, right? It's like business yeah. time. So they leave their family. Is it Monday to Friday? Monday to Saturday? When do Monday
13: they see their family? Monday through Saturday. Yeah. So Sunday is reserved for families and a lot of them go to church. Right. It's like that. Yeah. But um, So then,
1: is, that, is that just so there's no distractions, so they can just concentrate on the running?
13: Yes. And I yeah. get it. I get it.
1: So what does a day look like for the athletes when they're training?
13: So they get up before um, 6 a.m. Um, there is a bell in, I think it's the men's dormitory that gets rung and that wakes up everybody. And so it really depends. Like, I mostly watched um, Tuesdays and Thursdays. that um, Tuesday is a track session and Thursday um, is usually a long run. Um, so I can only speak to those experiences. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, so... Thursdays, I know that they would leave around like 6 a.m., so I would be there um, by 6 a.m., and we would just follow the um, support van that um, Coach Sang and his support team um, ride in, and they hand out fluid bottles, uh, I think, every 5K.
1: I I don't know um, what your... um Training routines like, but for me, when I do my long runs, if there's a water fountain, I'll stop and have a drink. Uh, if there's a nice sunrise, I might whip my phone out, take a couple of photos for Instagram later on. Uh, at bathroom breaks, whatever you know, a, a, a run can be maybe twenty or thirty minutes longer than what it needs to be.
13: It's certainly not like that. You know, it's it's still really calculated. Um, I do run with water, but you have to also consider how fast they're running, and they definitely need, <laughs> need
1: the hydration. If
13: you're running um, sub five minute miles, we go by minute miles. But you go by
1: kilometer, k- yeah, yeah. So that's that's probably like just over threes.
13: It's extremely fast.
1: Yeah, three minute. Case. It's extremely fast. Yeah.
13: So yeah, you need to you need to hydrate.
1: You know, I suppose the point I was making is like that they're, they're not fucking around. Excuse no. my French. It's no. like, um, yeah, it's, and do they have do they have like watches on? Are they are they watching their wrist i'm um, i'm a slave to my wrist
13: yeah yeah i def- i definitely saw athletes with watches on but they aren't messing around they are quite serious you know at the end of the day it is their profession and it is like like you would go to an office and you would sit down at your desk and do your work it's like that but they're running mm. um and the thing that really stood out to me when they train is that they don't they're not like running along in conversation How's your day been? Or they're not like catching up or gossiping. It's not like that at all. It's not like conversational. Um, They're silent. They're silent and they're focused. And even after they finished um, a training session, it was more like, good job, fist bumps. Not like what I often see in the U.S. or Europe where people are like, rah-rah like you go girl <laughs> at that not, you know what i'm saying yeah, like yeah, I do. people can be really enthusiastic and you can do it
6: yeah, yeah it, was it wasn't nice. like that at
13: all it was more like good job fist bump let's go have some chai so that's
1: first thing in the morning so do they eat before they run
13: no they run fasted yeah hmm it's just, um, I think it's quite normal from what I understand based on conversations with local runners in Eton as well. It's just kind of normal. Maybe they have like a little bit of bread, but um, it's normal.
1: Yeah. So y- yesterday morning, uh, the morning of the Boston Marathon, what would Elliot have eaten before the run?
13: Oh, well, I'm… On I, race
1: day, or is it the same? Or? Yeah,
13: I can't really speak to that because yeah. I haven't asked him about his pre-race breakfast, but I can speak to… Um, <laughs> You know, just having interviewed Emmanuel Mutai, um, who was at one point, like, the fourth fastest runner, he, I think he told me that he just would have some bread. I, I personally can't run a marathon yeah. on just, like, a piece of bread, but that's just me. <laughs> I'm yeah,
1: just... I'm, I'm the same. I need some porridge or yeah. a banana or something.
13: Yeah. I think it also, like, speaks to the theme of, like, how simple things things can be like i think um particularly in the u.s and europe runners can they can overcomplicate the whole like idea of running like needing like certain fabric in their kit or like the latest watch and like x y and z supplements um but do you really need all that
1: sarah Gerhard?
13: next on the podcast
1: new zealand sailing royalty dean barker uh, this was an amazing chat. We talked a lot about his bowel cancer diagnosis and how he got through that. But in this particular snippet, he reflects on the 2013 America's Cup, which Team New Zealand lost after being up by eight races to one, putting them on match point. Okay, well, let's go straight there. So 2013, so this is 10 years ago now, and I can still, 10 years on, I can still see you almost like wince when you sort of like bring it up. You sort of bristle a little bit. So this was um, yeah, San Francisco, you guys against Oracle, and one of the the biggest comebacks in sporting history. So, Team New Zealand was uh, were 8-1 eight, uh, eight up eight yeah. one, and you needed to you needed one more race to win. Yeah, but then what did they do? They bought in some parts from overseas, or they bought in uh, no. Subin Ainsley? No, what,
14: what, what? no. It was, so you know, people people sort of um, you know, it, it sounds like a bit of a, a cop out. But so when when we started started the uh, the regatta, they. They were still at sixes and sevens. They'd been pulled up for uh, for cheating. They'd um, they'd been tampering with, you know, their their smaller boats. They'd been through some, like a court court sort of well, not a court, an arbitration hearing, which um, you know found them at fault. You know, they got penalised. A couple of their sailors couldn't be on the boat. You know, so they they were really in a, a bit of disarray. So we'd turned up in San Fran. You know, we'd gone through the Louis Vuitton series, and and the and we we're you know we're basically uh, just. Getting better and better at sailing our boat, so we're sailing that at a really high level. Um, they w- they were still really struggling to get their thing around the course. They weren't foil jibing, and foiling the boat consistently on the down one. You know, they were um, struggling to get that, that sort of consistency that we we, you know, were um, you know at, at a much higher level. So when we started the cup, you know, we were you know we were a lot faster than them on the up ones. You know, we'd typically we'd sort of gain. 45 seconds every upwind and, and, you know, downwind, you know, we'd normally be a bit stronger there as well the regatta was a really, really long series and um, you know, by the time um, you know, by the time we sort of got all the way through, there was weather delays, there was, you know, days off uh, um, other bits and pieces, you know, the um, races got called off because we went above the wind limit, we had one race that, you know we were, had a massive lead in the, um, and we ran out of the the time limit, um, it was just like, went on and on and on. I think, you know, the racing probably was the better part of three weeks, you know, by the time we got from the start to the end. Um, so every, every every day they they were going out there, and they were just slowly getting better and better and better. And, you know, the the deficit that they were suffering on the up ones that they were definitely whittling away at that. So we were still ticking away with race ones. You know, they'd get the old one here and there, but then it was like... Um, you know, it was becoming apparent that, you know, we needed to get, you know, get it finished because they were, you know, they were getting, you know, really, really, you know, difficult to actually hold mm. off or, or beat and so, you know, by the end, um, you know, they they turned the 45 second deficit into a, probably a 45 second advantage where they were able to get their boat foiling on the upwinds which, yeah you know, our systems were limited, we couldn't, we couldn't manage stable flight um, on the upwinds and, and that was just the game changer yeah. then, you know, because, by the end, we're both very similar on the down ones. You know, the the last two races. You know, we were um, we we led them around the, the bottom, and n- normally if you had that advantage, it would be race over. But they would just you know literally sail straight past us on the up ones. So it was incredibly um, frustrating. But you know the 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 worst one was you know when we were leading in the the race that um, that the we ran out of time. Um, you know, I think we we're leading by over a kilometre in that race, mm-hmm. but. It, yeah, it was just like,
1: just, just all the bad luck in the world. Oh, it was just like you know, we're,
14: I think we're like two minutes from the finish line. You know, it was just so you know you could, you know, and, and I was just like, <laughs> yeah. fuck, you know, where's where's the break? You know, and it just um, yeah, and so it just was just one of those things where it just kept going and going and going, and it was just yeah.
1: So eight one, and then just just day by day they they're just chalking up the wins. So yeah, then it's yeah, eight like two, we, eight three, eight four. Yeah, we,
14: you know we had the the sort of that mechanical issue, in one of the one the races where you know we went into the tack when we we're leading, and you know nearly capsized. You know, obviously saving that, you know, saved a huge amount of um issue with damage and things. But but you know we won that race. We would have won as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's always easier after the fact. You know the would've and could've and everything else, but. Yeah, it'll always be really hard to kind of sit there and, and look at that one and, and say that was, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, do you think? Do you think you're over it now? And I, I don't, I don't feel like you are, but I can't put words in your mouth. But I, I've had Shane Cameron on the podcast, and he told me the um, that devastating loss here to David Tua, He reckons it took him like seven years to get over it. Seven years before, you know, he'd get through a day and not think about it.
14: It's um, it's interesting. Like I. I, I definitely don't think about it every day, but, um, <laughs> but I do. I do still reflect on just that thing because you know, on one hand, um, you, you look at again. You, you look at all of the fantastic things that the team had done had done over the the thing, where the first team to, you know, look at the the rule a bit differently and, and figure out that they get these boats foiling. And you know, you look at where where we are today. Every every boat, mm. you know, around the world now seems to want to go foiling, and the America's Cup where it is, and um. You know, it changed the course of, of sailing. You know, we're sort of pioneering a different different sort of um, pathway. And, yeah, there were a lot of things we could have done better. You know, we, we could have done, you know, a hundred different things better. But it's, you know, you're just sort of just scratching the surface the whole time. And, and it felt like we were far enough ahead all the way through the, the process that we'd, you know, be able to sort of maintain that. But, you know, they, they did an amazing job of actually sort of, um, you know, catching back up and, you you know, giving themselves the opportunity to actually, uh, um, you know, overtake and, and they, and they did it, you know, only by the, you know, the very barest of margins.
1: Dean Barker on the Generate Summer Series. Next up on the podcast, Miyamoto, who broke onto the boxing scene and became a world champion in 2023. In this podcast, we discussed the early years of her marriage and when things turned abusive. Yeah, I don't know how much you want to get into this or not, but, um, I mean, on the Sunday piece, you talked about um, there's an awful story there where you talk about domestic violence that's happening yeah. to you and in, in, in your bed. I'm guessing that was further on because these that things. was further on. Yeah, these things tend to escalate. Can you remember the first time? The first, how did it start?
10: Poof. Started with verb
1: like ver- Verbal, verbally, yeah. just just mentally grinding first, you down. Yeah. yeah,
10: mentally, it was breaking me slowly, which I didn't know. But I look back and I'm like, oh, my gosh, he was mental. Because you didn't
1: didn't have that experience growing up, eh? you? you, you, No. And and your your whānau environment, there was no, like, your your, your mum and dad were never like that with each other. No, no, way. my
10: mum and dad never. My dad didn't even smack me, like, never. My mum used to smack me with a wooden spoon and it was like (laughs) a little tap and I used to laugh. And I'd be like, is that all? And she'd say, you want another one? And I'd be like, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) And she'd get angry and she'd be like, get out of my face. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, what did that mental abuse look like? And when did that start? How far into the marriage?
10: Oh, it would have been after I had my second child. Yeah. Which was my daughter. That's when it, like, really started. So,
1: after a couple of years, a few years. mm -hmm. Yeah.
10: So, how's my daughter? My daughter was a year apart from my son. So, not long after I had my daughter, I, like, he's was, like, always telling me, like, you're not, know, like, started controlling me, like, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, and then I'd be like, okay, why not? And then i I'll push the boundary, and then he would, like, give me a twat, and i will be like, you're give not you not Give me. you what? Give me a twat, like, you know, like a, a whack across the face. Right. And i will be like. Oh, like a slap? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, what was the heck? You're not allowed to do that. I was like, my dad's never done that to my mum. And he was like, well, you need to learn. And I was like, okay. So I was like. Okay, and he's like, "Don't you ever tell anyone either?" And I was like, oh, "I'm telling on you." And then he was like, "You go tell, and that's it. You're going to get another one." And I was like, "Well, I'll keep telling." And yeah, that. So
1: you were strong and feisty. This yeah. is this is this is the um the heartbreaking thing for me about your story, Mia. Like you, you did all the right things. Like you, you did everything that that every rational person would do in that situation. You know, yeah. At every step of the way, and it still happened. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, Yeah. And then, so it just escalates from there?
10: Yeah, it just slowly starts escalating. And then, like, I start seeing, like, bongs and, like, you know, weeds stuff. And I was like, why are you smoking weed? Like, because I was so anti. And he was like, you can't tell me what to do. And then he would be, like, telling me, like, you need to go get a job. So i get a job. Mm. And listen, like, respectfully, because, like, okay, this is me and my knowledge and my theory and my brain, just for me, I would be like, okay, I have to, you know, he's my husband now, I've got to respect him, I've got to honor him, you know, stick to the rules of what the Bible says. Mm. So I never looked at the worldly rules. I always looked at the Bible rules. That's just how I viewed my life. And so I was like, okay, you know, and I didn't believe in divorce because that's so wrong. The Bible, Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I believed like divorce was a sin. So I was like, no, I don't want to go to hell, <laughs> you know. So I just tried to look after and, like, honour what my husband said. And he'd be like, you have to go to work. I never controlled any money or anything. He controlled it all. Because I didn't know he would pay and he'd be like, okay, you get this. And I'd be like, okay, cool. And I wasn't allowed to spend my own money. So he controlled everything. Even, like, t- told me to get my licence. And, you know, he controlled my licence, my passport, all that stuff. And I just... I was like kind of like, Is this normal? but I saw it normal in his family, you know I started to see
1: how so like it was is he from that sort of is that how he is, is that the yeah. sort of behavior he saw growing up yeah
10: that's the behavior he's used <sighs> to so like I would see it in like it's in his mum and his dad and then like his family so it was like okay is this, this is normal for this okay, I don't see this in my family mm. and then so I was like, okay, maybe my family's different and then. So that was normal. And then I go to their town, and it's exactly the same. And I was like, every female is getting treated like that.
1: Miyamoto on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Duncan Garner, New Zealand Broadcasting Royalty. In this portion of our podcast, uh, he talks about the day that the radio station he was working for, Today FM, was taken off the air. And the fallout afterwards. Today FM—that's the thing you've most recently sort of been in the headlines for, I guess. Mm. Uh, it was a talk station you were working at, part of MediaWorks, from nine am to midday, and then it was just um, sort of cut off the air. There was a voice break with you and the breakfast announcer Tova O'Brien. She said, "What did she say?" The, f- the fucked us. The fucked us. Yeah, it was raw. Mm. Um, and you said it's betrayal. Mm. And then the station was taken off the air, and music was playing a short time, short time later. It's probably still on YouTube. Like you can, that stuff lingers around forever. I
0: think it might be part of history. Yeah, now. Yeah.
1: So yeah, yeah, Tell us, tell me about that day.
0: So um, the, the funny thing is, the, the night before, I was I got a, um, an email from from a guy in um, told a, a, a listener, a caller to a to, to a show. He his son was almost abducted that that afternoon from school, from a school bus. He rang the cops, and then he emailed me. He said, "You're the second guy I've thought about." It. Uh, this is fucking shocking in this country. What do you think, Duncan? And I, middle of the night, I emailed him back. You've got to come on with me this morning. Let's talk about it. So I was very really excited for this day, you know, and, I, and I, mm. I even arrived at work a little bit early because, um, which is unlike me. And I had I, I had this guy Nick, the father, lined up ready to go. And I, I arrived at the office. I saw Dallas Gurney across the, um, the 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 desk, and I gave him a little fist pump, like you know, I'm, a, I'm early, you prick, you know, because they gave
1: Dallas Gurney, the boss, yeah, of, yeah, the boss uh, today of um, okay. today
0: for him. So I gave him a little fist pump, and he sort of raised his eyebrows at me. I thought, oh, hey, hey, is you going to share my passion for this story and this outrage of some bastard trying to abduct an 11 year old, mm. you know? And so. And then I went into his office, and he's, um, oh, I think something's going down. I'm not sure what it is, he said. So there was something happening, but he wasn't quite sure. He knew there was a meeting at lunchtime. Just get ready for it. You know, there's something to do with the station. Hopefully it will be okay. And I thought, I, I, what, was he, what was he telling me? You know, I was a bit confused. So I went in with Tova at 10 to 9, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and then I got a text message from the interim chief executive of MediaWorks saying, I will monitor you in my office if I can after your show today at midday. Suddenly, the Lego was being built. You could see the picture. Right, yeah. Shit's going shit's going down, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we flew, threw out the debate, topic, whatever it was, and we said something's up. We went public on it. And then at 9 o'clock, I took over and did my show. I was trying to do the right thing professionally, and people people understood. And they started bringing in, hey, man, I hope you guys don't go. And then Tova crashed through the studio back and said, we're fucked. And everyone just came in. They were crying, so – that was all over. They brought up the music. One guy actually rang me. The last call I got, he'd rang me the day earlier, abusing me for, for being me. And then he rang back saying, "Oh my God, you're going." And so he was. He seemed. He was seemed quite genuinely um, upset about it. We came off here. People are just. It's almost like you know. We'd had like, like a I'm taking nothing away from Christchurch earthquake, but there'd been an earthquake in our lives. You know. Yeah. A really big shake, and we. Well, it's, it's it's yeah. It's unsettling. We got taken to a meeting. And we got told these two hours consult. We're going to consult you for two hours and come back. Come back, it's all over. And we went down had a couple of beers downstairs and left the building. Mm. And and most of them haven't been back since.
1: Yeah. And then so this is the weekend after that. What's that like? You you wrote a column that weekend, didn't you?
0: So I'm in. um, I'm at home um, with Buster. And and your, your he's How he? he's, he's 12. twelve. He's twelve. Yeah. He thinks he's fifteen. <laughs> anyway, so and you know, in fact, I mean, I'll take you back a bit. I I went to pick him up from school, and um, he came out looking a bit worried. And I thought, what does he know? Of course, he's been through social media. Kids are on social media, you know. He's twelve, and he I, I, he hops in the car and says, oh, "I got something to tell you." And he goes, "I oh, know. You're going to be all right. Or you've lost your job." And his eyes sort of welled up a bit, and I see other. I he's he's a, he's a he's he's a great great boy. I love him so much. But he, he worries sometimes about things. And you know, you try and protect your kids from don't show them anything, like, the emotion. But you know, I sort of welled up there a bit too. And we drove home. I said, "I'll be all right, mate. We'll be we'll be okay. We'll be okay." Are you sure, Dad? I said, yep, "Yep, yep, yep. Been here, done that. We'll, we'll be all right." Mm. And then I, I still didn't speak to my mum. She and she was a, you know, your mother's listening to you. And so mum had mum had had heard. I didn't get to my mum till Friday night. This was Thursday. Remember, mm. it was two days. And I couldn't get to her. My phone was going crazy. Uh, I had to go to rugby practice that night with her, my son. So I'd drive out. We're talking to rugby practice. All the parents, are, you know, because it wasn't a very private dismissal. This was a public execution, as such, you know. Yeah. So here I am. Hi, hi to the parents, you know, just out of this rugby team. <laughs> they are looking at me. Yeah, it
1: must be a weird feeling because you've got a recognisable face and everyone knows what you've been through. And yeah, I suppose well, it, was it's like on, a, it was
0: all in the media. Yeah, you, know? was, yeah. you didn't have to. You couldn't. You, mean, you would have in a cave if you if you hadn't seen it. Mm. So you know, I went to a fiftieth birthday that weekend, and I, I left. I left because um, I, just, I just couldn't handle all my mates at the fiftieth, you know, lining up to talk about it. Um, there's so much support you know because once you become a bit of a martyr like that as a as a as a as a station there's so much more support for it you know mm. oh it's finally someone lost us you know where were you when we needed you <laughs> but, but so and, but I, I wrote that column on the afternoon on the Saturday afternoon it took me five hours I tears in my eyes through the whole five hours and um uh, Buster kept going What are you doing dad and I said I'm just doing some work Because you don't have a job <laughs> I said I'm just working out This column And anyway So I put it out there I put my, I put my email At the bottom of it a Private email And yeah, yeah that's how I got a hold of you Yeah that's right podcast. And the next yeah. <laughs> Would you not Got hold of me otherwise <laughs> I don't wouldn't know how to <laughs> Yeah, so like, yeah it was. Anyway so, so um, Then I got like Hundreds of emails People sent me Really quality emails Not yeah. just um, One liners But they were I remember when you said This six months ago About your dad Or something And you know New Zealanders are good people. Yeah. Really good people. And and they like the underdog and they don't like it. They don't like when they think something's unfair and people have been treated yeah. badly. So.
1: Duncan Garner on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Shorty Clark, a 71-year-old triathlete from New Plymouth. He came on to discuss his age group win at the World Triathlon Champs in Dubai. We've got you on the podcast because you, last year at the age of 71, a time in life where I think most people are like putting on the slippers and winding down, uh, you became a world champion.
15: Yes, yeah, yeah, that was uh, against all odds. I um, turned the clock around and decided uh, once I got to about 50, we need to start counting my age back 49, 48, 47 instead of going 51, 52. So um, like a good wine, I've uh, finally matured.
1: Yeah, how good. So this was, um, this was the, uh, the world triathlon champs?
15: Yeah, the world age group triathlon champs held every year. The best of the world turn up. You've got to qualify through your own national federation so that, um, it's a competitive field on the day and not just your weekend warriors rolling in. So she's, uh, fairly rugged, but at this sort of age, you get used to seeing the similar competitors, uh, good mates from the states, uh, Poms, uh, Europeans, Frenchmen, and we're out there battering heads uh, quite regularly.
1: So you're in the age, you're in the group 70 to 75?
15: Se- yeah, correct, mate. 70, yeah. 74, because at 75 we click over and away we go again, hammer and tongs, mm. and some of us will drop off the perch, but I intend to be on that <laughs> perch for quite a while.
1: How many, like, is it a, is it a competitive demograph or... A, a- or does it get smaller and smaller?
15: It does get smaller as the years. And when I started uh, first rep in New Zealand in 98 as a young 47 year old, I think it was, there was roughly 80 in the field. Now we're down at my group. You're getting around the 40 mark. 40, mm. 45 is, is a good field at, at this age group and it slowly gets lower naturally through attrition. Yeah, and for sure. People parking up, looking for the slippers.
1: Yeah, when you get to like eighty five to eighty five to eighty nine, surely like it's a podium finish just by turning up.
15: <laughs> yes, that's quite. That's a classic joke. It is. You just have to. Oh, that- you, you just have to. You don't really have to do a lot there, mate. You can yeah. Sort of yeah. It'll suit you, Dom, when you're eighty five. Oh, how yeah, good! I'm into it. I'm into it.
1: Shorty Clark. Next up on the podcast, Marcus Daniel, one of New Zealand's best tennis players and an Olympic medal winner. In the snippet. He talked about some of the household names he spotted at the Olympic Village. Let's talk about some of the um, professional success. Would the um, would you say the bronze at the last Olympic Games in Tokyo is the like the pinnacle of your career? Like
16: without a doubt, yeah. yeah.
1: So that, that was the, the COVID Olympics. It was postponed a year. Yeah. So, I, you, so you've been to two. You went to the Rio Games in 2016 and the Tokyo Games. So I, I suppose you can compare the two. So you had like a normal Olympics and a pandemic Olympics. Um, yeah, let's get, go to Rio first. So, how was the Olympic experience? You're a kid from Masterton at Rio for the fucking Olympic Games.
16: It's it's such a cop out to say indescribable, but it's just like, <laughs> just like, draw on the floor, eyes wide open, and it was Mike Venus's first Olympics as well, and we were just like. We had bikes in Rio. We're just like biking around the village, just like looking at everyone. You're a
1: fucking tourist. Yeah, yeah. We are absolutely we're
16: tourists. And I would say it wasn't a normal Olympics in Rio either, because there was the whole Zika virus scare then. So you know there was a bit of fear in the Uh the air. Uh, The the Olympic village was um, was put together sort of last minute. You know, you had buildings that were sort of malfunctioning. (laughs) One guy, uh, one Martín Del Potro. he was playing like a quarter final against Djokovic or something and his elevator broke down <laughs> in his building so he was like stuck in the elevator <laughs> for an hour and a half so and oh actually one time i remember uh there were really high winds and and we were mike and i were eating lunch in the in the food area and heard this huge smash it's like i think it was one of the biggest tents in the world and uh and this big slab of plaster had fallen down from the roof, like, 30, 40 metres overhead, just in front of the door, like, two metres away from a group that had just walked in because of the wind. And so there was stuff like that going on at Rio, where... That's chaotic. You yeah, you don't think of that as, like, yeah. the Olympic sort of standard. <laughs> you had, like, big signs, like, windmilling over the Olympic, villi- <laughs> like, it, it was It was pretty funny. but um, But, yeah, the atmosphere there was really cool, and... Did you, to, did you
1: see anyone of um, anyone of note, like Usain Bolt, or I mean, do you get photos with anyone, or it, are you too cool to do that?
16: <laughs> <laughs> I, no, it's, it wasn't too cool. I just felt sorry for them. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saw so Usain Bolt. Um, one thing that actually really surprised me in Rio was so there's like Usain Bolt, who's he's just the godfather of Olympics, right? He's mm. like super famous, but then actually the, the ones who had the most attention were the tennis players. Behind that, so uh, Andy Murray was in the Olympic Village. Djokovic was there. Uh, I remember sitting at the same table as the Williams sisters, and they just couldn't eat lunch. Like, wow. Eventually, they they actually just like tossed their lunch and left because they were just there was just a crowd wanting selfies every every twenty seconds. I felt really sorry for them. Like, been yeah, doing place. a job ultimately, right? Yeah, and you think if there's one place that as an ath- athlete you can sort of relax and like be amongst your peers and just be there, it would be the Olympics, yeah. but. I guess because sports are so segregated, most of the time people don't see the other, you know, famous athletes from different codes that often. So it still is a big deal, but but yeah, it's like it's it's a it's an outrageously special environment, particularly in the New Zealand team because there's all of the all of the culture and the mana that they bring with them, and all the huckers to to be. Uh, welcome to the building and, and you know like you, you select a, a greenstone medallion when you arrive and it's all cut from one piece of rock it's like we're all part of the same team and that sort of stuff which on tour you, you're most often playing for yourself you have your country name next to you but it's like it's pretty individual so yeah. to go from such an individual world into something that felt so team oriented that like it gives me goosebumps man
1: Marcus Daniel on the Generate Summer Series next up Mills Miljainer, one of the greatest All Blacks of all time. In this moment from our podcast conversation, he reflects on the incident early in his career, which could have ended everything for him really before it even started, where he got intoxicated and urinated at a bar. Like actually at a, at the bar. At the bar, in the bar. Mills Miljainer. I'd forgotten all about this, and I think most people would have. So we, we don't even have to go there if you want, but you, you got in some trouble early yeah. on. Like there was um, – you got in a fight somewhere and then like public urination. So this is before social media. Yep. I'm guessing there was like MySpace or Bebo. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, sort of camera phones. So how, how did that happen? Was it a big deal at the time? I'd, again, I'd forgotten all about it.
17: Man, I, man it's, it's crazy, eh? Hey, because, again, when I mentioned the fact that there's been some challenges along the way, but that's just – you know I look back at an incident and – you know, while you know, discharged without conviction, that's still party life from Invercargill where you sort of, you know, pitch in together and have you know, 10 or 20 bucks each and you go and buy and keg and just get absolutely mothered Was still kind of in me, even though I didn't have 10 or 20 bucks, um, you know, I'd often just like try and scrounge off my mates. Yeah. Um,
1: I'm a, I am mean, a little bit older than you, but yeah, the keg party thing, you, oh, your mates man. chipping in every Friday Big and chipping the
17: right. I mean, if you're five years, man, I think it was 100 bucks or 90 yeah, bucks or something, yeah. you, you get a keg and you just sit there and just get absolutely trolleyed. Mm. You know I mean, that was...
1: it was the mentality, it, eh? It was. Sit in the garage.
17: It was, and um, uh, part of that was still in me, but now... I've got a whole heap of money. <laughs> <laughs> now,
1: now it's like, red, it's like Central Otago red wine. Well, not
17: even that; but it's all free. You know, because oh, right. you know, yeah. you walk in after an after match. It's all put on there. There's a bar that's allocated. You walk in. The sponsors' products are all there. There's a bar tab on. So, yeah, before you know it, I mean, you're just you're not even spending your own money, but you're just getting mothered too. So here I was, here I was now coming from a life like that and still A uh, huge huge part of me I was partying. Every weekend And then when I said about my money That was just That was going too Even though things were free Yeah um, And yeah uh, I got back from the Commonwealth Games uh, I was just after Just after my 21st birthday Highly intoxicated And it's You know what's crazy about this Dom Is I was sitting in the barbers And no word of a lie And my wife was in there And I was getting my hair, haircuts With the kids And the guy was sitting there and Goes oh g'day so It would have been about A couple of months ago now and usually every now and then I go, Oh yeah, just pretend I know who it is. And he's like, Oh yeah. And then he mentioned, Hey, do you remember me? My, my wife wasn't even around then. And I said, oh, who, who are you? And he was like, oh, I'm the guy that um, helped you out of the bar when you, when you pissed in it. And I was like, Mate, I'm 40 odd, what's that, 20 like odd years ago. And here's a guy there that's just like, going, He's the guy that sort of, um, Ugh. Sort of kicked me out. I, I, I oh, said, so "Did you piss in the bar?" Yeah, I, I pissed at the bar. At, at, <laughs> so, but when I, I look back and I, was, I remember, you know, the, the, um, I got a call from the manager and I was like, Fuck, okay, "Okay, so when I was a nobody, then really, I was like, so I was thinking, okay, you know, this there's no way this is going to come out. You know, and hopefully, I would have might have dodged the bullet." Um, Bought the NZ Herald and obviously it's folded in half mm-hmm. And I was looking at it, oh no, it's not there Going through, going through, not I was like, shit, I've missed it And then as I've closed it and then flipped it over It's on the front page and here's my face Oh, so you went straight to the sports page I'm Yeah, the, I was oh, thinking, God. shit And, um, mate, it was it, it was massive Because I, I sort of got to the part where I'm kind of like I'm like, one, I was, I was more embarrassed and, and, um, for my family And especially my mother uh, this was now going to be, and, and Mum's, um, you know, she's got a m- massive um, support network down there in terms yeah. of the church and the Methodist, um, Methodist church and all the, the old and the old ladies that have been talking to her about it. And so it was more kind of that. Yeah. I was still really young. Yeah. I was still twenty. I, I probably. Um, yeah, that hurt really bad. I think I was like thinking far out, you know. Um, just
1: the guilt and shame of letting your
17: family do yeah, it. Yeah, more than anything else, yeah, you know, because I, I still in my mind, I was like, oh, this thing is 21-ish, and I was like, okay, cool. I've got to, I've got to give up alcohol um, and actually put some, uh, put, put some processes. Well, I hate to use, or use the word process, but put some things in place that I, I don't get Mothered, yeah, uh, or don't get to that sort of stage. Which is, did you uh, reach that
1: decision yourself, or were you sort of I sat had, down with a leadership group? Nah, and,
17: there wasn't really a leadership group then as well, there was sort of leaders, but I was still relatively pretty young, and I just thought, man, I've, I, I don't want to do this again. I was more around the driven about not, not
1: putting your family down, yeah, yeah,
17: yeah, more than anything else. Mel Z on the Generate Summer series.
1: Next up, Hannah Wilkinson, who became an international. Household name in 2023, she was the opening goal scorer at the FIFA Women's World Cup. In this highlight from our podcast chat, we discuss her unusual experience of living in a random basement while playing in Sweden. Okay, so then, so from Tennessee, so where do you end up after that? You end up in Sweden? No, Portugal.
18: Uh, no, yeah, I went to Sweden as my first professional contract, um, and that was an interesting experience. What like, do you mean? Well. First of all We The internationals that go to this Like clubs in Sweden I mean this is probably different now And I hope it is Because there's more and more investment In the women's game But when I went in there um, I ended up uh, Living with a Canadian international But we stayed in this It was a A basement But it was being rented out It was a basement uh, Apartment It was rented out by One of the manager's um, Work friends (laughs) (laughs) So, <laughs> this is really, really weird. It's actually, so bizarre if you think about it. And uh, that was fine and good and whatever. Like, it's just it was such a small town. Yeah. And uh, the management um, just kind of worked with, with people that really supported the women's game. So it's actually quite cool what they did. And they had facilities or places um, for players, internationals, to come and live. And it was just a really easy way to help us, like, have somewhere. At um, the basement, it was a little bit, uh, like, my stuff got really moldy because it was just <laughs> really damp. I mean, it's Sweden, you know. So that was a bummer. But it was an adventure, you know. Like, it's the first time professional um, in a very small town in the south of Sweden. And it was a great club, awesome um, people. Uh, I improved significantly. Did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, I just pushed. The If you want to just really improve... Uh, at football, you got
1: to go to these leagues. These leagues will push you. And Yeah, and, and I suppose because you didn't really want to go home to your basement, you spent extra long at training. <laughs>
18: exactly, yeah, <laughs> as long as we could, right? It wasn't that bad, yeah, I will yeah. say. It really wasn't that bad, but it's just funny. You'll hear a lot of funny stories like that from women's players. And I think from, like, I would argue, like, maybe a lot of women's athletes all over the world because uh, sport for women is not really set up in the way or traditionally, it's not really set up in the way it is for men. You're not
1: treated as well as the men. Is yeah, that exactly. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. Most yes. of the time. I think some has it, has it got better? You must have seen like seismic improvements in, in Huge, your – massive. Drifting, yes, yeah.
18: I mean, I've gone from that to like I went and played in Portugal uh, at Sporting. Where Ronaldo played And it's the academy And we're like All as a collective Men's and women's training In the same sort of Kind of facilities And living like Close to Lisbon And like You're Mm. treated like A real professional Along with Melbourne City Where I'm at now It's the same thing Mm. So yeah it has
1: Did you you Have seen Ronaldo In real life?
18: No I never saw him But I did see Bruno What's his name? Damn Plays for Manchester Mm. United
1: I don't know. Yeah, You're no, asking the you Ted Lasso guy here. Oh, yeah. right. Well, all I know about well, Ronaldo Ren- you know Renal- Renal- is um, I would change sexuality for him. <laughs> would you?
18: <laughs> oh, I don't know. He's yeah, he's good. I feel
1: like he'd be yeah. Maybe love himself a bit too much. I don't know. <clears throat> I
18: think so. Maybe. What,
1: what about the Olympics? Did you, did you meet? Do you fangirl over anyone at the Olympics? Do you see anyone at oh, the Olympics?
18: Um, I saw. In 2012, we met Neymar. You have to know who Neymar is. You'll go and Google him later, then, if you don't know. And um, <laughs> another guy that you won't know. But that was the biggest. Who's the other Neymar. guy that I won't
1: know? Because. Of- um, I don't know, people that are into football that listen to One this. One of can... the other
18: Brazilians, because we were, Brazil Pelé. played. No, God, no. <laughs> Far out. I'm not that old.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I'm running. No, Google
18: Neymar, though.
6: He was okay.
1: Hannah Wilkinson on the Generate the Summer Series. Next up, Maya Wilson, Silver Fern star who shared some of her memories of her father who passed away early in her professional netball career. And your dad. So tell okay. us about Joseph Wilson.
12: Joseph Wilson, he um, – oh, jeez, what do I t- talk about my dad? He, I was daddy's little girl, and so pretty much whatever I wanted I got. <laughs> yeah, you um, mentioned the lollies Yeah, before. I mentioned – so, yeah, I talk about my – this is the difference between my brother and I. My dad would always – he loved trade me, and he loved going to, like, car fairs. <laughs> so we would – he would be like – he'd want a mate to go, so he'd ask one of us, like, who's gonna, who wants to come to car fair? We'd both say no, and then he'd bribe. He'd be like, you can get hot chocolates and hot chips. And so I would always say yes. And my brother would never go, so I was the one who was easily bribed. Um, my dad, when my parents split, my dad did bass, like did all the basketball stuff with me. My mum did all the netball stuff. So we lived in like Hillsborough and Mangere, so we and I would play out in West Auckland. So it would mean a lot of time in the car with Dad, just cruising around. Um, when I moved to Wellington, and he'd come and fly. To see me in some of my games. My favorite food in the world is a steak and egg fry bread from the Austadar flea markets. Like it's just what steak and steak and egg fry bread from the all of flea markets. What's that? It's literally like oh, a like fry, steak like a, and egg and a fry fried. Fried bread. Yeah, and the steak's steak and onion is marinated in a plum sauce. Like it's the greatest. Greatest shit It's like a heard.
1: heart attack Waiting to happen <laughs> I've got another Funny story about that <laughs> but, <laughs> I've never heard A heart attack And funny story In the same sentence I'm looking forward to I
12: actually I actually <laughs> took One of my former Stars teammates Out there And, and she's the only, Normally people are like This is so good Like this is so young She was the first one To say this is my Cholesterol intake For the month <laughs> <laughs> This chick from Christchurch And I was like Never I was gobsmacked I was like Who says it Like this is the best But when with dad He would He <laughs> would You like that one, eh? Yeah, I got. You like that one? Yeah, I got. Um, With Dad, he would fly down to watch some of my games on a Sunday, and on a Saturday morning at five o'clock, he would go and buy me like three steak and egg fry breads, and then fly them, like bring them down. Three months worth of cholesterol. Three three months worth of cholesterol intake, and boom, that's that. That was him. So, yeah, feeling best feeling was that he never got to see me play live for the ferns, but he... Got to watch me debut From home And he was there When I first wore The dress um, So And singing the National Anthem So it takes Something of real pride For me to wear Wilson on the back Knowing that he's mm. No longer here
1: Yeah And how, how old were Your parents um, oh, How old were you When your parents Broke up I was about
12: 13, 13. I was just about To start high school It was like yeah. January Before I started high school
1: Yeah what are, you, what are your Recollections of that What sort of impact Did that have on you Well
12: was interesting Because I think I developed a better Relationship with my dad Once dad um, left home And But at the same time I got really good times with Dad So like I said He was buying me the hot chockers <laughs> The hot chips And the lollies And so everything with Dad Was just amazing Whereas Mum and her Whatever was happening Her telling me to tidy up my room I was just not having a bar of it So I oh, so he was like
1: the fun dad And someone had to the be fun dad. the disciplinary Yeah He yeah, was the
12: yeah. fun dad Mum was the one who was really holding down the fort that I learned now, but she, she was just trying to boss me around. and was, was quite dominant. Like I just did not want to have it.
1: <laughs> you butted heads. But, I, I mean, the, the way things panned out with losing you dad, especially at such a young age, it's nice that, I, I don't know, I suppose it's nice that there was that separation and he, he did maybe go the extra mile and above and beyond yeah. know, to, to, to spoil you in a way.
12: Yeah, definitely. So it leaves
1: you with these good, lasting memories. Yeah, definitely. Maya Wilson. Next up, Ryan Hall. Caught up with this guy in Boston during the marathon week. Ryan is the fastest American runner of all time. He is still the only American to run a marathon in under two hours and five minutes, which is bonkers. Here he is talking about him and his wife, Sarah, and their decision to adopt four sisters from an orphanage in Ethiopia. Can we talk about your family for a little bit? Because this is a remarkable part of the, I think, Ryan Hall and Sarah Hall story. So you guys talk about this in as much or as little detail as you want maybe you don't want to talk about it at all but did you guys try and have your own biological kids?
6: we had always just wanted to adopt Yeah. yeah like ever since our first date actually sarah she told me she's like yeah i've always wanted to adopt ever since i was a little girl she drew a picture of her with like a lot of different colored nationality kids or whatever and that was like a moment where for me it just like struck me i was like oh i've never even thought about adoption you know i never saw it she saw it like she had like family and friends who had adopted before so she was just around it a lot so she was exposed to it but me i i hadn't been until that moment on our first date and that that was really like that's when i started chewing on it mulling on it myself so then when the time came that hey we felt ready to have kids um adoption just was what we always wanted to do you know and it makes a ton of sense too for pro runners right it's like for for women it's like you get pregnant have a kid you lose you know nine months of uh of your career as well so
1: why Ethiopia? Because yeah, you adopted um, four sisters from a- Ethiopia. Yeah, why Ethiopia? I know they've got a, a massive, like, um, orphan problem there. Something like four million orphans and orphanages around the place.
6: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we one of my favorite parts about running is we get to go train wherever we want, you know. So we had been all over the world racing and training. And so when you travel that much, you realize how there's certain places that just kind of grab you, you know. You're just like, oh, man, this just feels like my kind of people, my kind of place like like there's just something special about this place that just grabs you and Ethiopia is always like that for Sarah and I like there's just something about it that we just love like the culture, the mm. people, the land, the training, um, everything yeah. about it, the dancing, the food you know, but you do see i mean you walk around Addis on the streets and Kids come up to you like want to shine your shoes for five cents, you know, and they're stoked when you pay them double. You pay them ten, they're like (laughs) running off to all their friends like, "Hey, I got ten cents," you know. But it just breaks your heart. You are like, man, what's what's gonna happen to this kid? Like, how's you know, how's he can get himself out of this situation? So you want to do something, right? And so you know, we have our own foundation, the Hall Steps Foundation, and that's just because like it's like. Just everyone's just gotta do a little bit of something and then we can take care of these problems that we have in the world. You know, I really believe that. So for us it was like, yeah, seeing all these kids on the street, like we can't we can't totally fix the problem ourselves, but we can do we can take our step, you know. And so we decided we wanted to adopt from Ethiopia. And we were just going to adopt an infant kid. That was always, you know, our plan. That's what most people will start with. Yeah, well, the I mean,
1: there's been so many studies done about nurture versus nature and uh-huh. how something like 80% of a brain development is done in the first 1,000 days or three yeah. years. So I suppose people will think yeah, that will be the, the, the easiest option, just yeah. get, get a... Get a, get a kid that's not pre-programmed.
6: Yeah, yeah. And, and was that
1: your intention initially?
6: Yeah, that yeah, we wanted to just be a part. Yeah, and you want to experience it too as a parent. You yeah, know, You want yeah. to see what it's Stages. like to have that tiny little kid and hold them, you know. So I get it, you know. I don't like slight people for adopting <laughs> infants or for wanting to have infants. You know, it's great. Um, but what we saw as visiting the orphanage, we were like number 76 on a waiting list to adopt an infant. And that waiting list was barely moving at all. We would have waited. We would have never got an infant because they ended up closing down international adoption. Um, But when we were there, we were visiting these orphanages, and we saw all these older kids just waiting for families. We are like, this doesn't make sense. We're waiting for an infant. They're waiting for families. And after playing with the kids, interacting with the kids, like, they're such great kids. We are like, man, we'd, like, adopt any one of these kids in a second. So we did that. We went home. We changed all of our paperwork up and um, jumped through a whole bunch of hoops, like, in adoption, they call it being paper pregnant because you gotta just do so much paperwork, <laughs> and so it was insane how hard it is to adopt. It's hard; they make it hard on me, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we you guys ju- had
1: to do four times the paperwork. Yep, <laughs>
6: yeah, we did. And but yes, we decided we want to adopt kids, and we became aware of uh, girls, these four sisters, and it was just them. There's their whole family, just the sisters. And uh,
1: what, do you, what do, do you know? What's what's the backstory? What happened to the parents?
6: Yeah, we kind of let the kids tell the story if they okay. want. So uh, I try not to get too much into that. But yeah, they they had no other option though. Right. Like they weren't they weren't safe in their village where they were. No parents. So like it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, they were in yeah. a really tough situation. So yeah, we decided that we were going to adopt uh, our kids. Well, actually, it wasn't that simple. We we wanted to give them choice in the matter because, like, usually kids are adopted and they don't have any choice. Like, you know, these parents roll up and like, hey, you're coming with us. You know, <laughs> lucky you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we we went to the to the orphanage and we kind of just like pretended like we were there playing with all the kids or whatever. You know, and we were there playing with all the kids. So I guess we weren't pretending, but really, like, we knew like we were gonna ask these girls if they wanted to join our family but we wanted them to just get to know us as normal people first not potential parents you know so I'll never forget. Uh, after about a week, just hanging out with all the kids in the orphanage, we brought in our girls and we asked through a translator, asked them if they wanted to join our family. And told you know, we had told them about ourselves, and they knew about us and stuff. And I'll never forget their reaction. They all just like started screaming and crying, and they were like so excited. We we're all in tears, you know. And but I think that was really important for them to feel like we were not only choosing them, but they were also choosing yeah, us yeah. in the process. And that was it sounds uh, like an
1: episode of X Factor when they get told <laughs> they're going to boot camp or something. <laughs> <I> know, <right? laughs> so, um, so, what were the age ranges at the time?
6: So, at the time, they were five, 7, 11, and fifteen. So, yeah, and they, they were all how, how long? long they, how long had they been there? they had been in the orphanage for three years and they were having a hard time finding a family for him. So they were talking about splitting up the the girls. So sending two to one family and two to another family. And I grew up in the middle of five kids. And so I know like I couldn't imagine being split up for my siblings yeah. and they're, you know, they're talking about splitting them to different countries. It's like they're probably never going to see each other again. I was like, I couldn't imagine doing that, and so I was like, no, that's not not okay with me. Oh, that's you know?
1: a really cool. Th- I know you guys didn't do it for the uh, for the kudos or anything, but it's a really cool thing you've done.
6: Yeah, well, there's amazing. there's amazing kids. Yeah. Like we feel like we've gotten super blessed, super lucky yeah. to to have them as our kids now because they're they're not standard kids. It's like I was out uh, doing a photo shoot with ten thousand down in Sedona. Uh, just two days ago, and I, I was trying to rush to get there to pick up my daughter from school, and my 19-year-old daughter who drives, she had already gone and picked up Lily without even like texting me or telling me, she just knew that I wasn't going to make it and went and picked her up, so like they do stuff like that all the time, where I'm like, you guys aren't normal kids, they're, they're <laughs> really special.
1: Do they have English as a second language, or is it just
6: they didn't know any english coming right. over here never been to school before so you can imagine it was a real challenge especially for the older ones you know our younger two now they've forgotten amharic unfortunately we we're trying to have them retain that because we do go back all the time we were just there uh, training for this race um and visiting ethiopia but they they've forgotten amharic but the older two you know they're they still their english is really good one is at gcu grand canyon university in college uh and then our other daughter she's going to nc state next year they both run so they're they're doing great they've uh, amazing to me because when I go over to Ethiopia, like me speaking Amharic, it's so hard. Like my Amharic <laughs> is so terrible. So I couldn't imagine getting plopped into an Amharic speaking school in Addis and trying to survive, but they've they've been able to pull it off and they're just, they're doing great. They're so
1: what, what, what do they know about America or what do they make of it when they, I'm, I'm, all I can think of is the, like the Eddie Murphy movie, Coming to America.
6: Right. Well, what's funny is, so they grew up out in the sticks, no TV, no cars, no nothing, right? Never seen a white person or anything like they're out in the sticks like they grew up throwing rocks at monkeys to like keep them away from their like cattle and stuff like that (laughs) they have rocket arms though all of them they can throw because they're ever since they're little kids yeah i know i was thinking that we actually had one of our daughters try the javelin um, but what happened is then they you know, came to the orphanage, and then the orphanage they had TV. And so they started watching all these Disney movies and stuff, which was good because exposing them to English and stuff. But they also got exposed to a lot of American stuff. So we were actually surprised. They weren't super shocked by a lot of things when they came back to the States because they'd seen a lot of it already on TV. But we also couldn't talk to them super well because they only knew Amharic. We knew limited Amharic, although Sarah's Amharic was pretty good. And uh but yeah they they were, it was all pretty I remember there was one moment we were in an elevator we walked in an elevator this was actually in Addis and I knew they were going to freak out cuz I knew they had never been in an elevator before <laughs> Imagine you walk into this room this door closes behind you you're in this little box you press this button and then all of a sudden it drops They were like
1: yeah
6: <laughs> they just lost it in this elevator <laughs> I can
1: only ima- I, like when I was a kid. I was petrified of escalators and malls, like uh, getting on them and getting off. And I can't imagine like never getting one of them for the first time when you're fifteen, sixteen years old. It's crazy.
6: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there was more of those that we didn't even know about. Like I think like the hand dryer thing got them a little bit. <laughs> there, so. There's there's a couple things. Ryan Hall on the Generate Summer Series. Next
1: up, Archibald Jelly. Arch is the legendary running coach who coached John Walker to Olympic gold in the 1970s. He came back on the podcast for a second appearance a week before his 101st birthday. Here, he shared some memories and war stories from early in his life. What, what, someone wanted to ask, what's your earliest memory? I, I know on the podcast last year you shared a story um, about your brother chopping your finger off when you were five. Oh,
19: no, I think I've, I've got one earlier recollection. That's when uh, uh, I was at the, uh, what is, I think it was called the, uh, uh, the South Seas Exhibition. At, in Logan Park in Dunedin, uh, and I was on—I uh, think I was about four—and I was on a little merry-go-round, and, and, and I think my hat blew off, and and I. St- I tried to get my hat and I sort of fell off the and they had to, you know, stop everything. <laughs> That's the earliest I can remember.
1: <laughs> and then, um, yeah, the lawn mowing thing. Uh, for anyone that hasn't listened to the podcast last year, so you and your brother were mowing the lawns. You said it was with scissors. Uh, do you mean like sort of um,
19: shears or. No, well, we didn't have a lawn mower, and it was only a small lawn, and I was uh, cutting the lawn with uh, scissors.
1: So, ordinary what, what, scissors, like okay, like sewing yeah, scissors. Yeah. Yeah. And
19: uh, my elder brother, who's only uh, you know two years older than me, he uh, dad had given him the hedge clippers, and we got too close, and <laughs> I, one of my fingers had almost sliced off. <laughs>
1: Where is? It? How did the, did the surgeons do a good job? What finger is it?
19: Oh no! Oh, it's, it's oh that one there. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
6: Oh, hold it up to the camera.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And then, so then um, you, you didn't have a vehicle, so you had to run to the hospital, take the oh, train?
19: No, I remember um, uh, my, my uh, uh, the tip of my finger was hanging by a thread. I remember my father cutting it off and, and dropping it in the hole in the garden. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> today you'd have put, a, put it uh, on, on, ice. on ice and reattached it. Uh, then we... Uh, uh, I, was, yeah, I was about five or six, I remember we walked up to the cable car, and that's about uh, <laughs> a thousand metres or so, and then took the cable car down to the city, and then took the, <laughs> the electric tram along, and then walked from there to the hospital, and then yeah. I was there for about a week.
1: And were you quite calm, or were you
19: like screaming in pain? No, 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 it wasn't very really painful.
1: Someone wanted to know um, if you've got any war stories, you, you, were, you were in a submarine, right, were you part of the Navy?
19: Uh, for so, a while
1: Yeah, so this was World War II How long were you, were you away for? You, you told me a story last year on the podcast about uh, coming
19: back home and not recognising your little brother I, I, I went away when I was uh, 20 We were uh, uh, in the Navy And we went to uh, uh, England via uh, uh, Panama, New York And then, then to England And uh, I had my uh, 21st birthday at, in uh, Jack Dempsey's Bar in New York but I wasn't a drinker at all. Mm. <laughs> but we were in the, thats where we had had the celebration, and then I was did the three months course at uh, Shotley Gate in England, that's near Ipswich, Colchester, and then uh, I was uh, posted to uh, a cruiser, to, uh, HMS Bermuda, and we were on the uh, Russian convoy, and we went to uh, uh, picked up the convoy. Uh, just uh, uh, just near uh, uh, in Iceland, Eric and then we went on to the uh, uh, Kola Inlet, and we were and uh, we were very lucky because the the weather was bad, uh, very low visibility and uh, low clouds. So we uh, we didn't. There were no uh, the, the German submarines and the. Uh, 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 planes and that sort of thing. We ne- we never saw them, and on the way back it was the same. We had bad weather, and uh, we got through. And nobody and no ships in the convoy were uh, were sunk. Do you look back
1: now and think how lucky you were that uh, that you made it home? Oh,
19: yeah. yeah. He, as you get older, you don't You don't sort of th- think about yeah. anything like that. I, I was uh, – it was in November, December, which is in the, in the middle of winter over there, and it was tremendously cold, but on the uh, a- uh, action station where I was, I was down about uh, three flights in the, uh, cont- uh, the high-angle uh, control room and very warm down there mm. because – There'd be no no show of getting out if anything happened. You yeah. know, you're yeah, you're <laughs> right screwed in the, in the bowels of the ship. <laughs> yeah. but, but you never thought about that sort of thing. Yeah. Was it only
1: when you when you get home, or as you get a bit older, that you think actually that could have been very yeah, very different? Yeah. 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 Mm. Well, thank you for serving our country. I appreciate that. How, how many years were you gone for? Because you did mention last oh, year. Oh, well, when,
19: when we got back uh, to uh, UK, uh, I was uh, seconded to the. Uh, uh, what they called the King Alfred, that was at Hove near Brighton, and I did the uh, uh, uh sub lieutenant's course. And when I was there, uh, at the end of the course, they uh, you had to say uh, which branch of the uh, navy uh, you'd you'd like to serve in. And not that that would make any difference because but you, you are, <laughs> they put you where they A want. Tough luck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for some unknown reason, I said I'd like to uh, serve in the submarine service. I don't know why. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I was sent up to uh, Blyth uh, up in Northumberland and I, I did the submarine course there, uh, <clears throat> which was fairly stringent. And then I was posted to... Uh, uh, coastal submarines, either as a, uh, a torpedo or gunnery officer, or la- my last job was I was a navigator. I
1: suppose being a young a young man from Dunedin, like the thought of uh, even seeing a submarine, let alone being on one, is quite enticing.
19: Mm. I, yeah. I think I was going to say too. Uh, after I finished the uh, course, the submarine lieutenant's course at uh, King Alfred, some of us were sent to Greenwich to do a sort of a uh, I was sort of uh, to learn the ways of, of the navy, you know, get, to have the right demeanour for an officer and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I suppose they tried to make uh, gentlemen out of her. And who who was it? The uh, somebody said, uh, I was just thinking, a famous New Zealander. Oh, I can't recall who it was, but he said uh, uh, about this course. He said, "We're not gentlemen." We're New Zealanders.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of my faves for sure, Arch Jelly. Next up, Sam Harvey. No relation. Sam made a name for himself in 2023 with an event known as Backyard Ultra. He's a fascinating guy. And here he is explaining exactly what a Backyard Ultra
7: is. I guess the sport that I've kind of really come into my own in the last couple of years. Um, I've obviously been running ultra marathon, which is really, really long. Format racing, but uh, so like hundreds of kilometers, and then the backyard ultra format, which I've kind of really been giving some steam recently. Uh, it's basically a last person standing format where you run a six point seven kilometer loop, and that six point seven kilometer loop might be set over, can be set up over any terrain. It might be flat, it might be hilly, it might be grassy, it might be rugged, whatever. But basically, everybody lines up. On the start line at the start of each hour, and you have sixty minutes to complete that six point seven kilometre loop, or four point one six six seven miles. And yeah, if you if you finish it fast, then you then you get a bit of a rest. Maybe like if you finish it in forty minutes, then you get a twenty minute rest, and you can eat and drink and uh, do do what you need to do. Or if you do it slow and you are coming in fifty nine minutes, then basically you've you've got to go out on. Straight straight away you get no rest time And so it's a bit of a balancing act But basically the way it works is You lap that 67 kilometer loop Hour after hour Uh, If you take longer than the hour Then you get kicked out Uh, If you can't start a loop Then then you get kicked out And it continues until there's at least At least two people left in the race And as soon as that second to last person drops off Then then that's the last person standing and they have to do one one more loop uh, to, to basically secure it. And they can't continue looping after mm. that. So basically it's the it's the winner. There's only one finisher in these races. And then there's the assist. And the assist helps the winner to get However far they may get before before they give up. Yeah, and
1: this is where
7: you um,
1: tied the world record recently, like a few, matter of a few weeks ago in Australia. and We're going to dive deep into that race because it's a the race itself is probably worthy of being a movie with the, the final three competitors. Yeah, there's there, like, there's so many layers to it. The the thing about the slaps racing, like to me, is that it feels from an outsider's perspective, it looks. Tantalizingly easy. Do you know what I mean? It's anyone can run. Anyone that's done a bit of running can run six point seven k's.
7: Anyone who hasn't done a bit of running can run six point seven k's in an hour. And
1: yeah. then you think I can have. A, I could probably just about briskly walk it. I could have a break, do it again. But then, like from my perspective, as someone that does like a, a, you know ten k here, twenty k here, you get to ten hours. You're bored you're bo- mentally. You're bored. You've also done, tired because you've done sixty-seven k's at that point, and you give up. But you just fucking don't.
7: Mm. Yeah, well, I think you, I think you touched on it um, briefly before, saying like it is easy and like this format of racing, it's easy until it's not.
1: And it, and that's the thing. It's the until it not. I suppose that varies from person to person. Mm.
7: And I mean, at the end of the day, the the farthest distance you've run is the farthest distance you've run. Mm. Like the longest you've gone might be. 20k so to, to up that by a couple of k's then that's 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 a win yeah uh is it your full capacity maybe not because in your head like that's that's your upper limit mm. when i'm just kind of going to find wherever the limit actually mm. is physically uh and break down all of those mental barriers because yeah i've definitely like come to a point and i'm like oh 300 miles <laughs> <laughs> like there was at, at, at the australian <laughs> race a couple of weeks ago like i hit the 300 mile mark and that was like emotional i didn't expect 300 miles that's like
1: 500 k's uh yeah 300 miles 500 k's and then you end up running a, a total of 677 yeah so when you got to 300 miles um we can work in whatever format you want here um yeah. when you got to 300 miles like you you i mean that for a lot of people, you you could be like, okay, that's an epic milestone. I'm you know I'm in a wind down now. Yeah. I'm not
7: going to win, but it's amazing for me. But you just kept on fucking going. Yeah, so I don't look at it in milestones, and a lot of people do. Like a lot of people, a lot of people say, oh, I want to get to the 24 hour mark, which is 100 miles or 160 kilometers, or I want to get to the 40 hour mark or the 50 hour mark. Honestly, I just kind of dissociate altogether. I don't count hours. I don't count kilometers. I I just like. I'm just there to run, run and I do a loop and I just complete a loop and I just focus on the task at hand and don't kind of let it, let the grand scheme of, of things affect me too much. Sam Harvey on the Generate Summer Series.
1: Next up, Cam Jones. Cam made a name for himself in 2013 to 2015 as Dallas Adams on Shortland Street. Here, he reflects on Shortland Street and the passing of his father. Well, let's chat about your dad for a bit, because you you mentioned him. So your parents were, and probably rightfully so, I suppose apprehensive about this career choice? Yeah. Yeah, as you (laughs) were. You're from Hawke's Bay. I'm from from Palmer's the North, just up the road. It's the same sort of thing. thing. You want to be an actor? What what the fuck are you on about? There's
4: no career in that. I mean, (laughs) New Zealand, let alone Hawke's Bay, you know, like New Zealand, it's not really a career path, but fucking let alone small towns, you know, Hawke's Bay, it's not not even a, a, a
1: thought. You know, so it was a bit wild, but um, so but, when you got the job on Shortland Street, they must have been like, "Oh, thank God, okay." because that, yeah, that, that's yeah. the, like the pinnacle of New Zealand in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. I think I, th- I think so, and I think, I, I, well, my mum she was always supportive. She she was happy that I was just doing what I wanted to do, but I think Dad was more obviously practical and pragmatic me, for pragmatic sure. For sure, yeah. Was like, I don't want my son being broke. <laughs> So, you know, I don't want him to struggle in life, you know. So Mm. I think he was just coming – he
1: came from a place of love, but it was pragmatic. Mm. And I suppose from your your parents' perspective, um, when you've got a son that's got a major role on Shortland Street, suddenly it's like tangible proof of what you're doing. Mm. You know what I mean? Like their friends will start commenting about it. That brings an element of pride and stuff, like guess. Yeah, 100%. Yeah,
4: yeah. And then –
1: so your dad, Graham, so when did he pass away? He passed away at the end of – 2015,
4: so right. yeah, yeah, right at the That's end. of quite 2015.
1: Fuck. So how do how do you at the time? Like? So 25. Right.
4: Yes, yeah, so that was my the end of my first year in LA. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm, so, yeah. What was his cause of death? Yeah. So he he was having some heart
4: problems, uh, and he was very dogmatic. So he never liked hospitals. He never liked getting treatment. Apart and, from Shortland Street. Far from no, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> apart from Shortland Street.
1: Uh, Um, Sorry, it was a nice moment I I fucked it
4: up Well I'm sure he would have enjoyed Being treated by the nurses at Shortland Street as well But no, no He he was having some heart problems And he didn't want to He he left it quite late And kind of put it off and whatever And it got to a point where he had to go to hospital He had keyhole heart surgery Which is a pretty uh, standard operation Mm -hmm. For heart problems Mm -hmm. Um, Hated hospitals Absolutely hated them Um, But he had the surgery It was a success and then he was obviously in an induced coma, and they the the doctor gave him too much blood thinner, and then that blood thinner caused a brain bleed, and within and then straight away it was just like twenty four hours. Yeah, you know, it was just like so. Once he got the brain bleed, he, he was basically a vegetable, and uh, mm. they called us and was just like, look, you know, you've got we're going to keep him on life, life support yeah. and, um, until you can all say goodbye, and then but there is no no. Um, fixing it unfortunately um, so it was, it was a very sudden and it was just really uh, tragically ironic you know because he, he hated hospital, didn't want surgery, survived the surgery and got through and was came out on the other side and then they just overdid it on the blood, on the blood thinner Were you ang- angry the, at the time? Yeah I was, yeah. yeah. yeah because, is there anything you, know, you can do about it or well, is it just like great, sorry My it's bad. It's just sorry, you know they call you we got called into this weird kind of room and then the head surgeon or whatever he is, he, he kind of says, look, on behalf of the hospital, sorry. And it's like, cool. It's not That's really good right. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. But, but the, yeah, it's, it's, but it's at the same time, you you know, it's a hard one. It's a hard one to wrangle because, you mm-hmm. know, you know that the public health system is so fucking overworked. But you also, which makes me angry at that as well because mm-hmm. I'm like, man, if they have fucking enough rest, with mm-hmm. it, you know, this is a human error you know so what do we do to stop this because mm. this is obviously costing lives and it's like we're not talking about a car here we're talking mm. about a lot of uh, life yeah, yeah, yeah. and then affecting people's entire fucking lives and families so it, I, I was quite angry but at this you know me being angry or at the doctor or at the hospital wasn't going to bring them back mm. so it doesn't matter if i swear at them or you know I'm not going to hit them, but you know, there's nothing that that's going to do anyway. So I was, it was it was kind of like a, a, probably a massive moment of realizing that there are things out of my control. Mm.
1: Can you remember your last conversation with your dad? I, I, I guess you didn't know. I don't know. Like from sit, sitting here, like you, you hope it's going to be something like poignant or profound, but I suppose not knowing he's going to pass, it was probably something mundane.
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that conversation. Really? Yeah. I was I was I was driving i was working um as a a front of house for a nightclub in in la and i was driving because i remember the the exit and i remember talking to him on the on the freeway and stuff and and it was before he went in for the surgery and um he was waiting he was waiting and i and 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 i I was really upset because i i I, i'd yeah you know, and I was getting worked up and I was saying look i i I don't want I don't want you to die like you've got to come out of this like I want to make sure that you know i I can talk to you and I want to make sure that you know you're there for my for my kids and you can be a, a granddad and blah blah and he said he he's reassuring me now it's gonna be okay and it'll be fine like I'm fine it's everything's gonna be fine and then he's just as we're about to hang up he he said um he said oh Just, just remember, um, always be a leader, never be a follower. And then, for the first time since I was a kid, he he said, "He said, I love you, and I'm proud of you." And it was weird because it was like, first of all, I hadn't heard those words come out of his mouth, and since I, you know, since I was young, and it's not that I didn't know he, it's not that he didn't love me. It's just he was, he was very old school. And it was just weird, it was almost ominous that he said that because it was almost like he knew. Because otherwise he wouldn't, it, it felt like he wanted to 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 be at peace by saying that and making mm. sure that I knew that before he went. Because I, I feel like if he knew he was going to survive, he wouldn't have said that because he would have been confident in the fact that he'd mm. be able to live to see another day and, and, and tell me that at another time. But it was just, when he said that, I, I got a real sinking feeling and I just yeah it was better just to hear those words and you know just yeah it really obviously i was fucking i was crying in the car and and um those those were literally the last words you said to me and um what a
1: great last conversation though yeah with the benefit of hindsight yeah So much for listening to this episode of the Generate Kiwi Saver Scheme Summer Series. Full disclosure: it takes a fair amount of work to put these episodes together, so I genuinely appreciate you listening right through, and I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. If you ever want to get a hold of me for any feedback, guest suggestions, anything else, I'm Dom Harvey NZ on Instagram, or you can email me, domharveynz at gmail And if you don't do so already. Please hit the subscribe or auto-download button on your podcast app so you won't ever miss an episode of the show. 2023 has been epic, but 2024 is, I hope, going to be even bigger. Guests in early 2024 include the star of Virgin River on Netflix, Martin Henderson, Warriors coach Andrew Webster, and Steve Williams, the caddy who worked with Tiger Woods at the absolute peak of his powers. It truly is going to be a cracker of a year as the podcast continues to grow. Just before I sign off, big thanks to the absolute weapons at the Generate KiwiSaver Scheme. I'm a fan of the Generate team and I can't speak highly enough about the job they do for their clients. Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of chart-topping, long-term performance. If you want to make sure you're making the most of your KiwiSaver account, talk to an advisor. Head to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash get advice. That's generatekiwisaver.co.nz Forward slash get advice. A copy of their product disclosure statement can be found there too. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. All right, thanks so much. And I do hope to see you next week on the Dom Harvey podcast. See you.
10: Hold up, what was that?